0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship located in Sunnyvale, California. Our worship now as we study God's Word together, so I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, we'll be in Genesis chapter 2 while you're getting there. And also we have a bulletin that's provided, if you didn't get one, um, it's there in the back still available, but if you do, uh, there's an outline there that we'll be following Today in Genesis chapter 2, while you're preparing and getting that ready, just a couple of announcements. We do have Children's Church, as Pastor Bob mentioned earlier. So if you're a fifth grader on down and you would like to be a part of Children's Church with the Ings, go ahead and meet in the back lobby there, and they will be studying the Bible. That's what we do in Children's Church here at GBF. It is not romper room. It's not strictly just playtime. It's actually they get to study the Bible and learn to worship God reverently. So it's an edifying time. It's a beneficial time, and we're privileged that we have qualified, trained, loving, equipped adults who are willing to work with our children in that manner. And a couple of other updates. Just want to thank those who filled in the hole for me last week. I was out of town last Sunday. Thanks, Jr., for preaching the word. And uh, look at that man! Wow! Nobody ever claps for me thanks mike <laughs> no i i haven't heard the sermon yet but I, i've talked to several people and uh just got good feedback he preached the bible faithfully so that is awesome and i wasn't worried it's just a comfort to be able to to leave as a matter of fact last saturday night someone asked me where i, where I was so who's who's taking care of the sheep tomorrow and i just said yeah i got faithful shepherds who can Fill in and preach the word, and what a blessing. So thanks, JR and company. Uh, Also, just to follow up on that, we do have a Sunday night seminar. Just by way of reminder, from 5 to 6, you can come and just have soup and salad free over there in Cupertino, Creekside Community Church, cafeteria there. Great time. And then from 6 to 7.30, the topic tonight, as Bob said, is uh, different forms of government slash economics that people who call themselves Christians hold to socialism yes uh, there are people who call themselves christians who hold to forms of socialism calling it by various names so we're going to look at that along as, along with capitalism uh, and then theonomy or theocracy well slash post-millennialism view so that's the third view and that's four views so and it's going to be interactive it's challenging we've had about 40 to 50 people each time and then we conclude with, well, what, with all this, what's in the balance, what does the Bible actually say on this topic? So socialism is a huge issue. It used to be a huge issue in the Soviet Union 50 years ago. Now it's a huge issue here in America. Socialism in all of its forms, including social justice, we'll get a little bit on that tonight as well. So I'd encourage you to come and it's free. You don't have to, if you miss the first two, you can show up tonight. It's independent time and self-contained in, and in itself. We'd love to have you. Uh, so that'll go from 6 to seven thirty tonight and then we got four weeks left of different topics we're doing next week by the way i think we're going to do singleness different views that christians have regarding singleness and there are several and they can be contentious so we need to look at that it's a reality that'll be next week also just so you know the church body we had our annual staff retreat this week so as me and brother austin and pastor Derek and pastor bob and Pastor JR the five of us we just spent about 24 hours together great time together but we we spent most of our time brainstorming and talking and searching the scriptures about ministry here at GBF and what God has done what God is doing and then we also spent some time in prayer together so we try to do that once a year and it was very beneficial so we thank you for the opportunity to do something like that all right let's get to the sermon of the day we are continuing in our series in the book of Genesis I promised you that we would go through the first 3 chapters so that's still the goal right now because it is so foundational Genesis 1 2 and 3 answers so many foundational questions not just for Christians but every human God answers those questions in Genesis we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through it today of these very significant questions that are answered by God's word through the book of Genesis we are now in Genesis chapter 2 we began uh, a paragraph, verses 4 through 7, we'll pick up on that. The last time we met together two weeks ago, we were covering verses 4 through 7 in Genesis chapter 2. We had three points. Uh, one was the formula, this technical phrase that introduces verse 4 in this section in chapter 2. But today we're going to look at the foreshadowing. So the formula, the foreshadowing, verses 5 and 6, and then we'll look at the formation of the first man, which is verse 7. Uh, before I do, I just wanted to say that I was able to meet some new folks visiting today. Thank you for being here. Just about every week we have visitors for whatever reason, just passing through, visiting relatives, moved here, new to the area, on vacation, whatever it is. Thanks for being here. And we usually, the way we proceed in our worship time together and studying the word, we just will take a book and, and go through it as God wrote it either sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. Usually we're in the New Testament, the New Covenant, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We decided to take a little bit of a break to go to Genesis. Uh, And so we're looking at the foundation, chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's been a blessed time. The New Testament is built on the Old Testament, and in particular, many things in the book of Genesis need to be understood thoroughly, completely, and accurately for a Christian to have a full understanding and comprehension of the meaning of, and significance of the new testament in your own christian life absolutely foundational so that's one of the main reasons why we're doing it Uh, we went through and talked in detail about the first week of creation where god created all things in the first six days on the sixth day he left the best for last from his vantage point and that was on the last part of the sixth day he created humanity the human race or at least the first two humans yet to be named in genesis chapter one and made them with great dignity and promise and a great commission to rule on his behalf on the, the earth said that they were made in God's image they were to reflect God's very character as they subdued and ruled over the earth on behalf of God and chapter 1 concluded with that superlative statement not just from Moses but the spirit of God himself after looking at creation and God made an assessment at that time and said it is very good very good and there are all kinds of implications in that phrase it's a technical phrase not just moral implications but i think spiritual implications as well as we read the context that it was very good because everything was exactly the way god wanted it in the beginning it was absolutely complete within the first six days there was no needed development or evolution to continue and carry on also it was very good and it was without any stain without any sin without any death without any curse it was not a fallen world it was a perfect world in many ways we can't even fathom what that is like Keep in mind that the person writing all of this account is Moses himself. He was a prophet of God. He spoke face-to-face with God. We don't know exactly when Moses wrote Genesis, but it could have been while he was leading over 1 million Israelites out of slavery of Egypt, hundreds of miles as they're going north and around, eventually to the promised land of the place we call Palestine or Israel. And we know that they spent 40 years in the wilderness, and during that time, no doubt, As God spoke face-to-face with Moses, Moses was writing much of this down, Genesis through Deuteronomy. How do we know that? Because Moses said so. He wrote it down. God said, or God told Moses, write this down, or Moses wrote. And then that's affirmed in the New Testament many times when Jesus said, Moses wrote, or Moses said of me. And the Apostle Paul as well. So Moses wrote the book of Genesis sometime around 1400 B.C., probably as they're going through the wilderness. And the reason I bring that up is we need to remember who the original author is. That was Moses. When did Moses live? Well, we know 1400 BC, around there. Those are two good basic litmus tests if you want to kind of vet a Bible teacher when they're talking about Genesis. If you're in the Christian bookstore looking at a commentary, ask those two questions. Who does the author say or think wrote the book of Genesis? Well, the correct answer is Moses did. How do I know that? Well, church history says that unanimously. The Jews have said it for 3,000 years, and also Jesus himself said that. We've looked at that. Sadly, that's not the predominant view in the evangelical world today, especially at the scholarly level. And the second question is, when did Moses write this? Well, he wrote it in 1400 B.C., around that time. But in the evangelical scholarly world, you'll hear all kinds of different answers. It wasn't written by Moses. It was written as a patchwork over time, here a little, there a little. Moses actually wasn't the author, but it was written anywhere from 1200 B.C. all the way down to 500, 400 B.C. by many different people, many different schools, many different editors, and it's an eclectic hodgepodge, really, of a, a mess that lacks continuity from a literary point of view. That—that That is the dominant evangelical view that's pretty sad but as we go through we're going to see that that's just not true moses wrote it about 1400 bc and here's another point is that moses his audience who's moses writing to well probably going through the wilderness and he's writing to the people he's caring for that he's shepherding for these 1.2 million israelites who have just spent 400 years in slavery in egypt Subjected to centuries of false gods and pagan ideology and utter subjection and mistreatment and brutality, deprived of divine revelation that properly interprets the world and their very own life and reality itself. And God raises up this prophet, God raises up this human savior named Moses, the mouthpiece of of God, and he's. Taking these people through the wilderness and he begins to write divine revelation for his people and he's he's writing it, he's disseminating it, he's speaking it. He's preaching it to these people, preparing these people who are the Jews, the Israelites who are coalescing and becoming in a very formal way. The fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham in 2000 BC that I will make a nation of you and you will be special to me and I will make a covenant with you and I'll have a relationship with you and you will be my I will be your God and you will be my people. And so God had to give them a land, and that's where they're headed. God had to give them people and descendants, and that's what had been happening for 400 years as they multiplied and became a people that could constitute a nation indeed. And with that, God had to give them laws and an identity and a religion and a system and a mechanism by which he could have a personal relationship with them, and hence that's the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And so Moses is giving this information to his audience, the Jews. And so here they are getting this information, and they are blessed, they are shocked, they are informed. Much of this is new information. It's absolutely needed. It's preparing them for their special identity when they become the promised people in the land of Israel. This is all preparatory, and God God is using Moses to give them the, the content of Genesis. So keep them in the forefront of your mind as we study Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. This is what Moses was saying to the people of his day. From their perspective, what did they understand? What were they thinking 1400 B.C. as they're listening to the words of Moses? They weren't thinking all these other alternatives that have come up in the last hundred years here by way of reinterpreting, misinterpreting the book of Genesis. They took it at face value. I just can't emphasize that enough as a Christian. And how we need to understand and read the Bible. Face value. So that's my approach. How do you understand and interpret the book of Genesis, Pastor Cliff? Just face value. I read the Hebrew text. I study the Hebrew text. And then I translate it and then I interpret it and preach it to the best of my ability. And with God's help, try to apply it for whatever is applicable to us, primarily through the help of the Holy Spirit. So that needs to be our approach. So today we're going to do that very thing. Keeping in mind that yes, we are an audience. God knew. 3,400 years ago that today you would be the audience of Genesis chapter 2, 4 through 7. But it started with the immediate audience of who Moses was writing to. These people who had been slaved. They are in the wilderness. They have been deprived of basic things like water to drink. Arid landscape. They just heard about the Garden of Eden. How lush and green and perfect. And everything they wanted to eat was at their disposal, at least for the first two humans. The environment was perfect. There was no sin. There was no corruption. There was no death. There was no compromise. There was no slavery. There was no subjugation. There was no pain. There was no toil. We just finished chapter one. And the last thing ringing in their ears, these Jews who were listening to Moses, was it's very good. Here's creation that God created. It is very good. It is perfect. And you can imagine what their initial thought is. What? Genesis, so really, this is how it came to be. This is how we got here. This is who God is. This is what he did. This is the way things began. We came from these first two people made in the image of God. Everything was not just good, 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 but very good. Everything was perfect. The natural question they had to have as Israelites in the wilderness was, what happened? That's the question. What happened? And I would submit to you that starting at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4, All the way to Genesis chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, uh, verse 26, is really Moses' answer, part one, to that question, what happened? What happened to perfection? What happened to the Garden of Eden? What happened to sinlessness? What happened to perfect harmony? What happened to very good? Well, here's what happened. It all starts in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. So let's go ahead and look at it. The title of the sermon today I put there is Yahweh makes the first human, part two. Because last week uh, we, as we were looking at four through seven, today we're looking at the first paragraph. So let me just read chapter two, verses four through seven. So God finishes creation; He rests or ceases on day seven. He has pronounced that everything is perfect; it is complete. He will no longer be creating anything. There is no ongoing evolution it is done literally we translated the hebrew it is finished exactly the way he wants it and we also said that genesis chapter one really is the prologue to this book that moses wrote technically if you wanted to study the book of genesis the right way like a informed hebrew israelite or jew chapter one of genesis in our english bible shouldn't be chapter one it should just. Cross out chapter 1, just put prologue, and that goes from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3. Then at chapter 2, verse 4, when it says, this is the account of, this is the history of, this is the generations of, this is the Toledoth of, that's really a chapter heading. So starting at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, you could put chapter 1, Toledoth, first Toledoth. And chapter 1 for Moses goes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, to chapter 4, verse 26. And we'll talk a little bit more about that after we read verses 4 through 7. So here's really the first formal chapter in the story of how all things began and how they got all messed up from the point of view of Moses and God. Verse 4, chapter 1, this is the account, this is the Toledoth, this is the history of, this is the formal written record of the heavens and the earth. That phrase, the heavens and the earth, he's picking up from verse 1, the very beginning, the first line in his book. And the Toledoth there, we talked about last time, Toledoth is a Hebrew word, printed it out there on your bulletin for you, Toledoth, T-O-L-E-D-O-T-H, Toledoth. It is a loaded term, it's one word in Hebrew, you have to translate it with its full meaning by like 10 words in English to get the point across. Moses uses it 11 times in the book of Genesis, he uses it 12 times in Numbers chapter 1, It's used also in the book of Ruth. It's used about 33 times in the Old Testament, 100% of the time when it is used, Toledoth, that word, it's always a technical word. And it pretty much has the same meaning every time it is used. It refers to a written record, a written account, a formal account, an account that is to be preserved, a detailed account. It is always used, get this, in narrative passages, not poetry. It is always used in historical accounts, not mythical. Toledoth. So in your English Bible, if you have the New American Standard, this is the account, the account, that's Toledoth. If you have the New King James, it says this is the history of. That's the best translation. Some say this is the generations of. I like to just say this is the Toledoth of. It's the Hebrew word. We're learning Hebrew along the way. You've been enjoying it. Toledoth. Translation, this is the formal written account of the history of that which became of the heavens and the earth. So the way Moses uses the Toledoth, the eleven times in the book of Genesis, he uses it as a chapter heading, chapter title. It's always a heading. And then the rest of what follows is how that unfolds. Here's what became of, literally, is another way to translate it. So you could say verse 4, this is, what became of the heavens and the earth. So that makes total sense. He just talked about the heavens and the earth and how God created it, and it was perfect. And they're all with bated breath waiting. Oh, okay, it's very good. Then what? And Moses answers by saying, and here's what became of it, Toledoth. Here's what became of that perfect heavens and the earth. And here in 1400 BC, people, by the way, it's not very good anymore. And they're all saying, yeah. How did it get this way, Moses? So here's what became of. So if you take the Toledoth phrase, as I put the references down for you, It's used here, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the Toledoth of Adam. This is what became of Adam. This is what became of Adam and his descendants. This is what became of Adam and his offspring. And then chapter 5 and following is the Toledoth of Adam. Well, what became of Adam in chapter 5, verse 1? What was the Toledoth of Adam? Well, the repeated refrain in chapter 5 is, it lists all of Adam's descendants, and it says... And he died, 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 and he died. What is Genesis chapter 5? It's the the chapter of death. It is the chapter of death. Why is Moses doing that? Well, God told Adam in Genesis chapter 2, if you eat from that tree, if you disobey, you shall surely die. And that is explicitly fulfilled in Genesis chapter 5. Not only will you die, all of your descendants will die as a result of sin. That's the Toledo. That's the theme. That's the chapter. Here's what became of Adam was very good who was without sin who was innocent yet vulnerable and he was vulnerable to sin and he disobeyed and he got the consequences god said he would get and he, died, and he died and he died and he died and he died but god didn't just say he's gonna have consequences for sin because within that because god is a gracious merciful god always within sin is god's hope god's grace God's mercy god's gospel god's good news here's the bad news you sin you die here's the good news i am a loving savior and my desire is to seek sinners to save them from their sin and rescue them. So I have a rescue plan. And God told us that rescue plan right here in Genesis early on, right after the sin, Genesis 315. Yes, you're surely going to die. Here's the curse. Here's how it's going to be horrible. But I'm going to send an offspring of Eve who will crush Satan and will be the savior of the world. And so Moses uses the Toledoth in later chapters to highlight and develop that savior is a coming of Genesis 315. Where's that? That's in the Toledoth. That comes after Adam's. So the next Toledotha, the next chapter division is Genesis chapter six, verse nine. So describing what became of Adam, yucky, ugly sin and death and a lot of hopelessness with that. And corruption reigns supreme on the earth. And God grieved as he looked at earth. And boy, this has become a yucky, grotesque, despicable, evil, violent mess and god regretted that he had made man says the anthropological language describing how god felt even though he knows everything but he had a solution because he's the savior god oh i will raise up another savior his name will be noah And that's the next Toledoth, Genesis 6, 9, the Toledoth. This is the Toledoth of Noah. This is the account of Noah. This is the generation of Noah. This is the history of Noah. This is the unfolding of the life and the plan of Noah from Genesis 6, 9 all the way to the end of chapter 9. That's all about Noah. And it's very selective information as God shows and reveals the people of Israel. Yes, sin is horrible. Yes, the world got bad. Yes, I had to wipe it out with the flood. Yes, there were only people, eight people left, but I preserved the descendant of the Messiah who I talked about in Genesis 315 through the line of Adam, through a son of Noah, and his name was Shem. And through Shem will come the Messiah, eventually the Savior of the world, despite all this sin. That's where Paul in Romans talks about where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You, If you are a Christian and a believer, you can't outsin the grace of God. We are horrible, terrible routine sinners and yet where sin is grace abounds all the more that's god's promise to the christian that is good news so that's the next toledo the next chapter the chapter on moses and his descendants what became of noah well here's what became of noah in noah's day the world was terrible but god raised up noah to save eight people to wipe out the world and start all over again and initiate some new plans and also preserve the line of the messiah that was promised in genesis three fifteen. and he gets off the ark and he was one of those eight people and he's one of the sons of noah And Noah had three sons, and one of them was horribly wicked, and his name was Ham. And from Ham came the Canaanites, the wicked, evil, immoral, idolatrous people that would become the perpetual enemies of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Yet there was a blessed son of Noah, and his name was Shem. And from him would come the Shemites, or the Semites, or the Jews, or God's special people. And the greatest of God's special people, the Jews, would be the greatest Shemite, Semite Jew of all. That's Jesus, the Savior. So these are the Toledoth that Moses is using, very deliberate, very specific. The Toledoth of Noah. And then you get to chapter 10, verse 1, the next Toledoth. The Toledoth of Shem. And then chapter 11, verse 27, another Toledoth of the sons of Noah. Saying what became of them. Well, and Moses uses that Toledoth to show how all the nations came into existence. God didn't create nations in the beginning. He created nations. Nations developed. Came from the command to fill the earth and populate and so from all the loins of all those people came the nations and the nationalities from three different sons of noah including every single person in this room regardless of your ethnicity your origin of birth doesn't matter you came from shem ham or japheth from the loins of noah and that all goes back to genesis chapter 10 verses and also chapter 11 of how the nations arose and how languages changed and then the next Teledoth is Genesis chapter 25, verse 12. Uh, actually, Genesis chapter 11, verse 21 is actually the Teledoth of Terah, who's the father of Abraham. That's very important. And that's a chapter title. Genesis eleven twenty-seven. This is the Teledoth of Terah. Who's Terah? The father of Abraham. And here's what became of Abraham. So, and from that point on, Genesis chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Every one of those chapters follows the life of Abraham. With respect to the promise God made to him at age 75 until his death at age 175. And how he was going to bring about the blessed people of God, the Jews. Then you go to chapter 36. Verse 1 is another Toledoth. This is the Toledoth of Edom. This is the Toledoth of Esau. And it's a very short section, very Toledoth. It's a historical account of Edom. Esau, the brother of Jacob, who came from Abraham. Why is he so significant? Why does he get a place? Why does he get a whole chapter by Moses? This is the to- what became of Edom? What became of Esau? Very important. Why? Because Edom, who was Esau, became a nemesis or a perennial enemy of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. The Edomites, that's why they are significant. That's why they are mentioned. That's why Moses brings them up. And it was prophetic too. Here's what became of the Edomites. Here's what became of Esau and his descendants. Not only did Esau hate Jacob while Jacob was alive, the descendants of Esau continued to hate the descendants of Jacob through perpetuity. Even to this day, says Moses, they're attacking us right now in the wilderness, if you haven't noticed. Those are the descendants of Edom trying to kill us. And that carries over for another 1,400 years the greatest Edomite of all. His name was King Herod, who despised the Jews, even though he was a half-breed, and tried to murder the greatest Jew of all, Jesus. That's how important the Edomites were. And then the last Toledoth, as Moses breaks up the book of Genesis, is chapter 37, verse 2. This is the Toledoth of Jacob. This is the Toledoth of Jacob, who would become Israel. Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, the one that God made the covenant with, promising that they would become a great nation. And when God made that promise to Abraham, when he was all by himself, 75 years old. Not even a full blown believer yet until he was age 86, 11 years later. But he's giving getting these divine revelations and appearances of the almighty of the universe. And God promises him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you descendants as there are stars of the sky. I'm going to give you your own promised land. And God continues to repeat that promise to Abraham throughout his whole life. For 100 years, he keeps telling Abraham, I'm going to give you your own land. I'm going to give you the land to possess it. He says it in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17. And keeps repeating it. Why does he keep repeating it? Because Abraham is weak in faith. Abraham doesn't see tangibly the fulfillment of the promise. Abraham is a wanderer. He's a Bedouin. He has no place to lay his head to call his own. Virtually for most of part of his life, he's there as an alien and a stranger and a sojourner. And everybody else is occupying the so-called land that God promised to give him to become a nation. And God keeps saying, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to your descendants. It will be an eternal possession for you. Well, how's he going to do that? Through the descendants of Abraham through the miraculous birth of Isaac, and then his offspring, which would become Jacob. And then Jacob would have his 12 sons. And from chapter 37, for the rest of the book in Genesis, from 37 to 50, is the Toledoth of Jacob. Literally, what became of the historical, written, formal account of the life of Jacob? Well, what happened is the story primarily of Joseph and his brothers. This is all to be viewed and seen through Genesis chapter 12 and the promise made to Abraham. And also, the Corollary of that truth that God promised a Messiah in Genesis 315 preserved through one of the sons of Noah, the Shemites. And how is he being preserved through the line of Abraham, through the line of Isaac? Abraham had two sons. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was not the son of promise, despite what Islam says. Isaac was. That's the messianic line. God preserves that coming of the Messiah through Isaac. And then he has a son, two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the promise is preserved through Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And the promise of the Messiah is preserved through one of the sons of Jacob. Who is that? It's not Joseph, even though he was a good, loving, obedient son. But it was through Judah. What could you say about Judah reading Genesis? He was a horrible, pathetic, compromising sinner. Just like you and me. And God chose to bless the world through Judah through his descendants, through his loins, by bringing Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, King Jesus of the tribe of Judah, says the book of Revelation. It's amazing. So you've got all these corollary truths that God is making clear to his people. Moses is writing this all down, trying to encourage his people with divine revelation. I know most of you have probably never heard this over in Egypt with all of their false gods and their abuse and trying to keep you from literacy and divine revelation. But here's God's promise to us to the jewish people how amazing how encouraging so that's just the big picture so when you study the book of genesis you you shouldn't study it chapter one chapter two chapter three chapter four in your english bible really it's through the toledos those are the chapter headings that's what makes sense and moses used those as headings and also hinges connecting it all flows together there's continuity the section before one toledoth is totally consistent with what comes after there's continuity throughout the whole book this is the hand of one author one literary master inspired by the spirit of God himself who put this whole amazing book together to encourage the people of God. With that, let's go ahead and look at the foreshadowing. Three things not in the beginning. So you're reading this. Okay, so this is the account of the heavens. What became of the perfect heavens and the earth? That's the way you should read it. What became of it? Did it always stay very good? Did it always stay pristine? No. No got soiled, got tampered with, got compromised, got messed up, got cursed. And here's how it all began. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That's really it, kind of the chapter title right there, that phrase that I just read. Then we look at points A, B, and C I got there for you. Foreshadowing. Three things. So he's going to basically describe how... The first two people came into existence. Now, I told you in chapter 1 that God created the first two humans in his image, and that was it. He didn't even give their names. He did not give their roles. He didn't give any distinctions. It was very generic and general. Now in chapter 2, he's going to be very specific. I didn't just create the first two humans. Here's how I did it. And I'm going to give you some detail. I'm going to show you the distinctions, and they have roles, and even the chronology is different of when they were created. I'm even going to show you how I made them and how I performed the first marriage. I'm going to even tell you what the circumstances were like and the conditions were like when I created the first man and woman because you 1.2 million Jews who are here in the desert or wilderness, conditions in the Garden of Eden were very different than what you have to live under right now. So let me begin the story of the first two people and how I created them. It's basically what Moses is doing here. Point number one. He gives some foreshadowing, which can be very confusing if you don't know what's going on here. Well, here's uh, what became of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Well, on day six, I created the first two humans. In that day, the Lord God made earth and heaven, verse five. Now, before I made the first two humans, you need to know this, verses five and six. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. That's interesting. So people read this and say, wait a minute. So w- before, uh, when God made humans, there were no plants. And then God creates humans in verse 7, and then those plants came later? I thought plants came first on day 3. I mentioned this last time that this is a supposed contradiction that people try to point out, where Verse five gives the impression that shrubs of the field were plants that came later after God created humans, but that's not what he's saying. Verse five: Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. Well, what we need to know is that phrase "shrub of the field." I think used about four times in the Old Testament. "Shrub" that specific phrase, "shrub of the field," used only four times. That phrase of the field is a technical phrase as well. It's used twice in this verse. The shrub of the field and plant of the field, of the field. Uh, uh, The hundred occurrences of it in the Old Testament are consistent. A plant that exists in the field is out there. It is in the countryside. It is a distance away. Sometimes it's kind of like in a desert, an inconvenient place, by a cave. The point is, These were plants that grew outside the Garden of Eden. So what Moses is telling his people, you know, there was a time when you're around plants all over the place. See all these plants and shrubs in the wilderness? Did you know that these plants and shrubs in the wilderness that don't have any fruit on them and that you can't really eat from and some of them are kind of prickly? Did you know all these plants all over the place? These did not exist in the first six days of creation. That is what Moses is telling them. Because the plants that God created in the beginning on day three, were good plants. They were seed-bearing plants. They were plants for food. That is clear. That is explicit. They were fruit trees and berry trees and whatever else. And they were self-perpetuating. And they were to sustain man and so that man could have joy in their great diversity and abundance. And so Moses is telling them, you know what? These plants that you see everywhere, that you saw in Egypt all the time, those didn't even exist in the first six days of creation. So he says, well, where did they come from? Well, They came as a result of sin, disobedience, and the curse from Almighty God. Because that phrase that's only used about four times in the entire Old Testament, one of the times it's used is in Genesis chapter 3 when God is cursing uh, Adam for his sin. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, where he says to Adam, because you have done this, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you and toil you eat from all the days of your life. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles, it will grow for you. And second part of verse 18, and you will eat the plants of the field. That is a new phrase. That is a new thing. Before this, there weren't thorns and thistles. And before this, there weren't plants of the field. And that is reaffirmed by what he says here in chapter 2, verse 5. Moses said, before there were plants or shrubs of the field. They did not exist during the first week. There was plenty of stuff that didn't exist in the first week. And plants and shrubs of the field was one of them. But when Moses is writing this in chapter 2, verse 5, that's why I say it's a foreshadowing. We're going to see that plants of the field come later, and they come as a result of the curse and sin. So when you go home and you garden and you got your plants and you got these shrubs and weeds and thorns and thistles, just be reminded that was not week one. That was after Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. And those horrible plants... Became in competition with the good plants that God had created. So, that's point two. A is shrub or bushes, things that were not in the beginning. They're a result of the curse. Well, what was the second thing that was not in the beginning? Well, uh, verse five: No shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field was yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. So, that's the second thing you put rain. Two B. What else didn't exist in the first week of creation? Rain. What else didn't exist prior to sin? Rain. When did rain come into existence? Genesis chapter 7, verse 4. God tells Noah, because of sin and wickedness, I am going to send rain down upon the earth. Rain didn't exist until the flood in the days of Noah, 2500 B.C. That was a new thing. And I can imagine the look on Noah's face when God said, you know what, Noah? I'm going to flood the world. What's that? Well, I'm going to do it with rain. Well, what's that? Well, it's going to come out of the sky. Say what? Water didn't come out of the sky. Yeah, it does. It will. And that's the point in verse 5 and 6. It says, For the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Verse 6, going back to the water. Well, where did the water come from? If the earth wasn't watered through rain from the sky, how did God water the earth? Verse 6. But a mist, or some translations say river, which is legit. There's great dispute on this word that's used only two times in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. But it was either some kind of a, a mist of water, or a subterranean river that used to rise up from the earth, up out of the earth, and that was sufficient, and it watered the whole surface of the ground of planet earth, and it was self-sufficient. It was like God's self-contained perfect terrarium. It didn't need a gardener to come along and keep watering and keep watering, and it would dry and that kind of thing. It was self-replenishing. It was just an ongoing, amazing, supernatural, hydrological cycle that God had put into his perfect earth before sin, before the curse amazing so there were no shrubs in week one of creation there were no there was no rain floods disasters in week one of creation what's the third thing that wasn't existence what's c uh to c the phrase at the end of verse five uh, for the lord god had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground what is that referring to well if you look at genesis chapter 3 verse 23 after god curses adam Starting at verse 22, Genesis 3:22, the Lord God says, "Man is sinful. He's compromised. We got to do something with him. He can't stay in the garden of Eden. We can't let him eat from the tree of eternal life. He'll be preserved in his sin forever. We got to boot him out." We, says the Trinity, we. So God says he's got to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden of Eden. That's exactly what he does. Verse 23, "Therefore the Lord God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden" To do what? To cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Verse 323 fulfills the curse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, where he said, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread from the ground. From now on, you know what? In the beginning when I created you, Adam and Eve, you had to work, but you didn't have to work with toil and blood, sweat and tears and pain before sin. But now as a result of sin, you have to eke out your existence in life through hardship, blood. Sweat, tears, toil, pain. And the fulfillment of that is Genesis 3.23, where he bo- got booted out of the garden, and now all of a sudden all these amazing trees aren't accessible for him anymore, and now he has to plant things like wheat. And you got to till the ground, and it's hard and full of soil and bugs and everything else, and weeds are trying to smother it out. I don't have all these convenient trees. I can just go pr- pull fruit off of just to, to earn bread, basic sustenance. That's the reference to Genesis 3.23. Now you have to cultivate the ground to get your existence. And that's been true of all of humanity since the curse, since sin. And that's been our lot in life. So there's three things. Shrubs of the earth, rain, cultivating to eke out an existence outside the Garden of Eden. Those things did not exist when God created the first man and woman. So that's very important for Moses as he's talking to his audience, the Israelites who are experiencing all these things in the wilderness and in their life and in Egypt as slaves. They experienced the shrubs and the thorns and the thistles and the lack of rain and the thirst as they were begging for water and the hard work and the labor they were subjected to 10, 12, 14 hours a day by Pharaoh. So that's encouraging them. You know what? It wasn't always this way. Things were different. The conditions were different. When Adam and Eve were created, life was perfect in the Garden of Eden. Well, why did it change? Well, I'm going to get there. We'll get there. But just so you know, the conditions under which you see now, this is not God's ideal. Yeah, the world is beautiful. Yeah, the world is diverse. Yes, the world and the universe have the fingerprints of the great, infinite creator God. But it's not perfect it is not sinless this is not 100 percent reflecting who god is who is perfect there was a better life before sin there's even a better life in the future so they needed to understand this so going back to genesis so that's the foreshadowing as he's laying the groundwork to explain what it was like when the first two humans were created and so we'll look at that verse three the formation of the first human being Let's read verse 7. So now that I set the conditions of what life was like during week one when everything was perfect and not anything like what we're experiencing today, on day six, then the Lord God, go back to verse 4, middle of the verse, in the day that the Lord God, you might want to circle the word Lord God if you actually have a Bible, the Lord God. That is the first time in the Genesis account, that is the first time in the Bible where this compound name of God is introduced, Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. 30 plus times in Genesis chapter one, it was God, 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 Elohim, 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 Elohim. We talked about that. That is the generic general name of God. For the first time in Genesis 2, 4, Moses introduces Yahweh, Elohim. Yahweh, what is Yahweh? Yahweh is God's personal name that he actually introduced himself to moses when he met moses personally face to face for the first time in exodus chapter 3 verse 14 remember when moses said uh okay god you want me to go and set the people free and be your spokesperson but when i go to those people who are under the domination of the egyptian pharaoh who thinks he's a god along with Ra the sun god when i go to them who do i tell them sent me god what is your name Exodus chapter 3. And God answered Moses' question. He said, glad you asked. That's the living McManus translation. My name is Yahweh. Or a shortened form of Yahweh. A very personal name of God. The covenant name of God. An intimate name of God. The personal name of God. And he entered into a personal covenant relationship with Moses as he would enter into a personal covenant relationship with his people, Israel. It'd be a perpetual, continual covenant initiated by God. You will be my people. You'll be my special people. You'll be my unique people. You'll be set apart as a people. You'll be sanctified people. You'll be my possession. You will belong to me. And in the context of that relationship, you shall know me as Yahweh. God was very specific in terms of the meaning, the sanctity of the name that He chose to establish and ratify that relationship. Just like we take a lot of time and we take it seriously, maybe when we name a child because of the significance of it. Almost a hope and a prayer and a prophecy of what we want our child to be known as or be like, and that's what God revealed to Moses. So here's Moses writing this. Hey, here's the personal, it's not just God the Creator here. Man, on day six, when God made these first two humans, He did it as the personal God, the covenant God. And by the way, Israelites, here's Moses writing in 1400 BC. God isn't Yahweh only to the people of Israel. This is not the first time in history where God had a personal covenant, intimate relationship with a people named Israel here in 1400 BC. This is not the first time. As a matter of fact, God, the creator operated that way on a very personal, intimate level in the very beginning with the first two people who we know as Adam and Eve. So that's what he's emphasizing. This is the personal, intimate name of God. Yahweh. This is very unique. This phrase, this compound. And and he uses the two words together. Yes, he is the transcendent creator, Elohim God. And at the same time, he's also the very personal, intimate, caring, loving initiator in relationships. Covenant keeping God, Yahweh. He is both of those. And that is how the first two humans knew him. They had a relationship with God that was untainted by sin. They walked immediately in the presence of God, in the cool of the day, in the garden, unhindered by sin, not separated by the curse of God. So they knew him as Yahweh initially. That's what Moses is communicating here. He uses the combination Yahweh, Elohim, Lord God, 11 times in Genesis chapter 2, 8 times in Genesis chapter 3, and hardly ever throughout the rest of the Bible. Exodus chapter 9, I think it's used once. So that is significant. This is the Lord God, Yahweh God, the personal God. And here's how this personal God operated. Verse 7, he didn't just say, poof, a man, poof, a woman. God actually got down and intimate somehow, even though God doesn't have hands or a body, he intimately got involved in the creation of the first man in terms of the fashioning and the forming. And so blank number the first blank there 3a the formation how did it happen i just put formed is the word formed that's the hebrew word used in verse seven then the lord god formed man it's a great translation not created it's not bara it's not created out of nothing not created without existing materials he used it, existing materials to create the first man yatsa it's the language of the potter the potter forms and fashions the clay this is how jeremiah uses it with respect to god god yatsa he's the creator he's the potter So God formed the first man of the dust of the ground. That's the dirt, the wet dirt. And he fashioned the first human being out of the dirt, the dust of the ground. Miraculously, this is literal. He literally did this. This is not metaphorical. This is not symbolic. This is not allegorical. God literally did this. Made the first man out of the dust or the dirt of the ground. And after he fashioned him very carefully, the work of the potter implies intimacy and purpose and detail and creation, everything about it. He's the master potter. By the way, that's the only explanation in the entire Bible that tells us how human beings got here. So when your young child comes along, mommy, how did we get here? Honey, that is a great question. As a Christian who reads the Bible, the answer is not, well, Billions of years ago, nothing existed, and then it blew up and became everything. And then some green slime evolved into monkeys, and that's where you came from. By the way, with no purpose whatsoever. That is not the answer. Mommy, where did we come from? Well, I'll tell you where we came from. God told Moses that God in the beginning created the first human being, and his name was Adam, out of dirt. Mommy, wow, that's crazy. That is not very scientific or empirical. Well, I know it's actually impossible, humanly speaking, dear. Let me continue the story. Then what happened, mommy? Well, God made the form of a first man out of the dust of the earth. And then it says amazingly in verse seven that God, Lord God, creator God. Infinite, all powerful, mighty God breathed into this form's nostrils, the breath of almighty God. And boom, man became a living soul. Honey, it was a miracle. Honey, it was supernatural. Honey, it can't be replicated. Honey, it'll never happen again. God isn't gonna ama- make. Mommy, that is awesome. Is it really true? Absolutely. It says so in the Bible. Well, how do you know, Mommy? Well, all the prophets in the Old Testament verified this story. Jeremiah the prophet repeated this story. He called God the great potter who formed man and brought him into existence. Really, Mommy? Yes. And you know what? Even in the New Testament, the apostle Paul alluded to this story and even quoted from the story in Genesis chapter 9 and 1 Corinthians 15 when he told us how the first human being came into existence. when In Romans chapter 9, Paul affirms that God is the potter and created us as humans, fashioning them exactly as described in Genesis chapter 2. Amazing. And by the way, honey, Jesus affirmed this reality as well. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus knows everything. And Jesus said that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 really happened. And he even quotes them when he taught his disciples. Jesus said that God created the first man in the beginning. That's amazing. And the second point there, the formation, how did it happen? Well, he formed him, was very intimately involved, B, and I just put there, man is dust. And here's a contrast. So there are things that are different in chapter 2 from chapter 1, and those are deliberate. In in chapter 1, all it says is that the first humans were being male and female made in the image of God, so emphasizing their equality. Chapter 2 really highlights their distinctions, not their equality. Both are true. There are distinctions. Adam was made first. Eve was made second. There are distinctions. Adam was made from dust. Eve was made from a rib. There are distinctions. God gave Adam a different role than Eve and purpose under their main purpose. So there are distinctions in chapter 2, and that's what he's highlighting. He's also highlighting vulnerability in chapter 2, dependence upon God. Chapter 1 emphasizing man and woman are made in the image of God, they reflect the image of God, they have inherent worth and dignity. It's amazing. They are superlative among God's creation and all the created order, they are the apex. Yet, but in chapter two, man is humbled by the reminder that he was created from dust. From the dust of the ground. Man is vulnerable. Man is lowly. Man is humble. Man is distinct from the creator. Chapter one, God is transcendent. Chapter two, God is intimately involved with this creation of man. Yet, because man is dust, he's. Lowly, he's vulnerable, he's going to turn to dust. By the way, being made from dust, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, this was not the ideal, this was not God's final intent. God knew the future. The ideal man was resurrection man that could never die, never get sick, will never become corrupt. God knew that all along, that's always been his plan. God knows that when he created Adam. This is for a time. So this thing is just loaded in terms of its implications. And when God does implement the curse for Adam's disobedience, that's why he says, you have sinned, you will be punished. There are consequences for sin. Death is the consequence. You were made of dust and to dust you shall return. Genesis chapter 5, Adam died and turned to dust eventually after death, as all humans do, fulfilling God's promise. People that just continue to tell us, well, this isn't scientific. It's totally scientific. I mean, it's supernatural, defies science in many different ways. But at the same time, much of it is very consistent with science. He was made from dirt. He was made from dust. When humans die, they turn to dust. All the elements in dust are all the elements you find in a human body. In turns of their composition. It's undeniable. Amazing. So the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed through his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's C. That's the last blank. So the first human being becomes a living soul. One of the key words there, nefesh. You've learned that Hebrew word, nefesh. The breath of life. Supernatural, animating life that comes only from God, the creator. He is the only one who gives life. We're in the age of uh, IT and uh, artificial artificial intelligence and all that stuff. AI, I should say. This can't be replicated. God is the giver of life. He's the only one. And we saw earlier that nefesh was also given to the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and every land creature. They were all given nefesh by Almighty God. He is the one who gives them life. You have a puppy dog at home? Why? Because God gave them animating life. You have a spider that's running from you or attacking you? Why? It's got nefesh, life from God. The fish that runs away from you, the birds in the sky that fly away, they are animated with the life of God, the nefesh of Almighty God. He is the one that gives life. Well, what about plants? They don't have nefesh. That's why Leviticus, I think it's 1711, says the life of the flesh is in the blood. God considers all animals, all humans, flesh. Plants are not flesh. That's why in Genesis chapter 1, it's important. Very good. No sin. But man's eating plants. He's not killing anything. He's eating the food that God gave him. But the flesh was not dying yet. So we will continue our. Actually, we'll conclude the story next week of how God, then, after making Adam, made the perfect compliment and performed the first wedding. That'll be exciting. And we'll continue there. Let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father for his divine revelation in the Word. Thank you, Father, for this day. We thank you for the privilege, as always, to come be with the saints, to worship you with your people. Thank you pre- for preserving the Word of God, Scripture, the Bible as it is ceaselessly, mercilessly attacked through the ages, yet you continue to preserve it providentially, and you also enable your people to believe it through the gift of faith and just amazing relevance, implications. Even as we read this document now from Moses that's over 3,000 years old, Reminding us of our dignity, reminding us of how we are precious, reminding us of our main role on earth, reminding us that we are vulnerable and frail, reminding us that we need a Savior to save us from our sin and our own self-destruction. And we thank you that you've provided that through Jesus, our Lord, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.